0: Hello, my friend. Welcome back to the Naked Leadership Podcast. This is Chad. Once again, I'm joined by Dan and Adrian. This week, we have an incredible guest, Linda Jenkinson. Linda's a chair and CEO of many, many companies and has been over the years. She's an absolute business tycoon in every sense of the title. Man, this conversation is so good. She has so many stories She's brilliant, Uh, it's educational, it's inspirational. I cannot wait for you to get acquainted with Linda Jenkinson. She also talks about her new mission in business, which is so powerful and important. She talks about that towards the end of the conversation, so hang in for that. So without further delay, I give you Linda Jenkinson. So the first place that I want to start is just having you talk a little bit about your background timeline. I think it'd be great to hear some of how you and Dan connected, Um, but whatever feels relevant, especially in the leadership realm, um, as we talk about like leaders, leaders that are just looking for a space to be them. um, I would love to hear any of that background and, and um, information about yourself and your journey. Does that sound all right?
1: sure thing so um i will uh take a go at it and uh, and i'll tell you that shall i tell you the dan story as part of that because it is a pretty fa- fabulous story in terms of leadership what do you think dan oh i love it yeah okay uh so um uh my story the story of lj uh i have had about four lives right so um if I start from the beginning, my first life was a farm girl in the Manawatu in, in New Zealand. And then, but um, I come from a highly competitive family, and uh, my father was selected for the Olympics. My brothers were all fabulous at sport, and I can't throw a ball. So um, you had to have a winning strategy in our family. So um, my grandmother taught me how to play poker when I was five years old. And that was pretty significant because I was conceived legitimately. So I was always the outsider in the family because back in those days, um, you know, that was not a good thing. So the first time my grandmother ever met me was when my father threw me on the bed and introduced her to um, her grandmother, granddaughter, and never le- nevertheless, um, she never recovered. So um, the only gift I ever got from her was a pair of pantyhose and she taught me how to play poker. And uh, I realized that, um, so then I perfected the ability to beat my brothers in every single game there was. So they refused to play with me anymore. (laughs) Um, So I got this whole context of, you know, I really wasn't born with all the natural talents of my family. So the whole, so, so I looked at everything like a game and contextualized it to figure out how to win. And so when I was about, um, between the ages of 10 and 20, my dad started 15 businesses, which all grew to one or $2 million in revenue. He was a rampant entrepreneur. Uh, And this was in the middle of nowhere. This was in a place called Hiwanui, which is one of the windiest places in the Southern Hemisphere, which is why the reason why I'm so stroppy is because I was brought up in a headwind. It's windy every day of the year (laughs) Uh where I lived. Uh And um, so when I was about 16, I came up with this idea that I wanted to figure out how to grow bigger businesses than my dad. So um, I then went on a quest and uh, no one in my family had ever stayed at school past the age of 15, been to university. And uh, so I went and uh, did um, computer science, accounting and finance, not because I had a great love of uh, accounting and finance, but I wanted to understand the numbers. And computer science, I thought, you know, I've got to figure out how to scale these businesses. So I did a triple degree and, um, you know, I was always really curious. And so I sort of, um, in my schooling, you know, I did one year where I did all of the arts and then I did my next year when I did all the sciences. And then I left school a year early and went to university and did computer science and accounting finance and my chartered accountancy. And. Um, I then finished up, I packed everything I owned into a Mazda 323, and it was called the Vibrating Mazda because I used to drive it at full speed till it shook. And I drove the hour and a half to Wellington, which is the capital city of New Zealand. And no one in my family had sort of left home before. So they were all in Palmerston North. Um, And um, I uh, um, went, went went and worked for Pricewaterhouse, never meant to. Um, uh, when I finished university, I was like, well, I've got to go and work for big companies to figure out how to build a big company. Cause my dad, all of his companies were less than like 2 million. So um, I met a guy called John Green. And at the time I took all the job interviews that um, I could get. And um, our horse was racing. One of our many businesses was horse racing So we were, one of our uh, horses we bred was racing at Treat Them. So I went and met this guy called John Green and the horse had won. We'd had a lot of champagne. And in the morning, John called and said, oh, it's so great that you've decided to join us. I only found out like last year that I'd never accepted the job, but he knew that I was pissed as a fart. It's a technical term. And um, basically he really wanted me. So I was the, he'd been um, tasked with, with hiring the first woman into Price Waterhouse, who had partner opportunity because there were no women. And um, he had been tasked with finding a woman who was smarter than the boys, could out drink them and out fox them. And so he was the one that I selected. So to get me to come on board, he agreed that he would let me experiment across multiple companies. So I ended up going into Price Waterhouse for a couple of years to learn about business and ended up staying there for eight years got put on a fast track program and it was an amazing experience in business. As part of that, I met this guy uh, called Greg Kidd. And um, mm. Greg, um, so New Zealand went through a massive restructuring process of private, uh, public sector to private sector, and they bought McKinsey, Booz, all the big consulting firms down. And um, one day the largest bank called up Pricewaterhouse and said, there's all these guys from Booz Allen here. We have no idea what to do with them would you send someone over to sort them out? And um, given that I'm a really good sorter outer, I was sent over. And Greg was the lead of the um, American consultants and I was the Kiwi to sort them out and figure out what they needed. So I figured out that um, within uh, two weeks that they had very large expense accounts and that they were very lonely. So uh, using Dan's training about interest, I figured out that I could supply many Kiwis to come to parties that they funded. And they the partners flew in from New York three weeks later and couldn't figure out how they had hundreds of Kiwis drinking all their alcohol in these wild parties. Um, but anyway, Greg and I, um, one day Greg said to me, he said, you know, why don't we start a billion dollar business? You got to realize this is 30 years ago. So people talk about this now, but I'd only ever met an American with a Hawaiian shirt and the camera. And so sitting there going, well, you know, I did say I wanted to build bigger businesses than my dad, so that's certainly bigger. And um, Greg's like, well, you seem to be good at getting things done, and I've got a few ideas. So we sat there in Wellington, New Zealand, and decided that that's what we were going to do. And seven years later, I was the second woman ever to list on the NASDAQ, and we built a half a billion dollar company with 6,500 employees in 80 cities around the world, based on a completely disruptive. Technology that we built out of New Zealand and a business model.
2: Yeah, why don't you tell them what the business was because it's pretty remarkable. And how, I mean, you didn't you just you started with a,
1: buying up a, th- a three million dollar tiny million? one? No, it was like a hundred thousand dollar tiny little business. And then so you rolled up what sixty one companies? And... Yeah, we I've bought over my life eighty seven companies, but uh, we bought we were um, we bought in that company we bought about seventy companies. Yeah, so we've done a few acquisitions. So, um, so when we sat there and we said, "Okay, well, how do we do this?" We um, we basically said, "Well, what is great that New Zealand does that's world class?" And we identified four things that we thought New Zealand was world class at, and we did a worldwide scan. Which back then, you know, there wasn't the internet back then, right? So, you know, you had to be pretty innovative to do that. And um, we came, we realized that New Zealand's same day delivery network was. Um, the most efficient in the world, the highest customer service. And the reason for that is that, that um, we have had in New Zealand for more than 40 years overnight check clearance. So New Zealand had to build, to, for that, they had to build a courier network that would bring all the checks to one central clearinghouse and clear them, process them overnight and then clear them. So this was the project that Booz Allen was working on, was looking at this clearinghouse. So we basically decided to build an on-demand delivery company. So we I can remember we sat there and, you know, we got our little balance sheets. We bought this tiny company with money from Greg's expense account. And um, we um, noticed that there was one dispatcher who was five times more productive than all the rest. So um, we went and watched him. And I don't know, traditional same-day delivery works that, You've got a package that you want to move for A to B. You call up, and someone shows up. It's a one-hour delivery. They often show up after about half an hour, but you're getting a bit stressed because you need it there in an hour. So you might call up again, and then it gets delivered. Um, you hope. Well, um, and typically, what would happen is a dispatcher. Because if you have a an on-demand delivery less than four hours, is a chaos business. So GPS doesn't really work for it. Um, it needs to be on call. Um, it's more chaos theory than logistics theory. So um, we most dispatchers got into their seat, they didn't get out of it for eight hours, and they had to remember in their heads where everyone was because it was highly dynamic. But what would often happen is you get five calls, there'd be five packages sitting on a, a desk, and you get five different couriers showing up because they were all going to different places. So this guy, his name was Kiwi Pete. Kiwi Pete couldn't be bothered with that. Kiwi Pete was pretty sort of laid-back sort of guy, so Kiwi Pete would just get on the get on the get on the radio, and he'd just call out all the packages, and the couriers would just figure it out themselves. And so what happened was, essentially, um, yeah, Kiwi Pete's a high case, right? So basically, what would happen is one courier would go in and get all five packages closest one, and that courier would go outside and then swap, and so then you'd have one going north with all the north packages, one going south, one would go west or east. Basically, what that meant was the dispatchers could dispatch their productivity level went up five times, but the courier's productivity level went up five times. And then typically the packages got picked up within 10 minutes. So it doubled the productivity of the call center because you halved the number of calls because no one was calling saying, where's my courier? So it was a naturally um, monopolistic model. We built a set of technology then, which enabled this like trading system in the background. So you get paid for picks, hauls and drops, and it was completely equitable. So if you had to go up a hill, you got paid more than if it was flat. And so we built this model that basically we could go into a city and within 18 months, we could have 60 to 70% of the market share. And as soon as we got that, um, we could then start delivering guaranteed 30 minute guaranteed 50 minute delivery. And um, So yeah, so that's what we did. So And this was back in the time before internet. So we built this on a distributed architecture on Apple. We had to build the whole thing, which we did. And so we could take courier companies from a two percent profitability to 15, and we yeah, they had a scale point, they couldn't grow. More than two and a half million, and so then we could scale them to multi-million-dollar city dispatch centers, which we did. So yeah, there's a lot of cool videos about our dispatch centers that we built um, back then.
0: What a ride! So we
1: were sort of Uber thirty years, be- twenty years before Uber.
0: That's amazing. <laughs> so good. There's yeah. a there's a through line in your story. At least you your younger. I'm I'm sure this kind of went through, but like this idea of competition is like the through line that I heard is you, at the way you tell the story of growing up in your family, having a competitive family, getting good at poker, um, wanting to build bigger businesses than your dad. I'm, I'm wondering how do you relate to the idea of competition? I think this is, this is kind of a hot topic as you talk about leadership and growth and how do you use competition and not let it overwhelm you or overcome you? I'm, I'm just curious your relationship so, um, to it.
1: So I don't, I see, I don't see it as competition. I see it as information. And my view is you've got to build a winning strategy. So if you think about poker or any game, what's the contextual play here? So, you know, to me, um, competitors are either to be bought, to be competed with, or to be defeated. And if you've played the game of risk, you know that if you have leave one of those little guys behind, you know, they're the ones that come and beat you. So, you know, when I start a business, the first thing I do is call everybody who could potentially be a competitor or a collaborator. And I talk to them every three months. And um, and my view is I either use them as a rapid product, as a product feedback map. So they're trying things all the time. It's information. Or I figure out how I can collaborate with them or I figure out how I can beat them. And I have a view of that from day one. So I'm always playing the contextual game. I sort of talk about it like you've got to build the concept, the egg, the chicken, the farm, and then you've got to win. What's your winning strategy? And I'm asking myself that every day and using that as like a feedback mechanism. So
2: Reminds me of the concierge.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, I'm, I work with a lot of companies in a lot of different contexts. And it's sort of like a lot of people, they're in the battle, they're not winning the war. And so to me, it's about abstracting everything you're learning all the time to say, therefore, how am I going to win? And I don't think companies do that enough. I think they, um, they're, they're always thinking about the next war and the war is sometimes quite irrelevant. And should you even be fighting a war, right? Huh. So, I I believe in a collaborative model, you know, in terms of how do you create the the fabric and the context for that, um, and that's something that you know I um uh, you know I, I've got so many different lives, that's just one of them, but you know in a different life, so I had sort of my life of the farm. I've given you a little sense of that. My sort of first life, which was learning all about business, I um, restructured banks all over the world my, and made partner, quit the day I made partner and took this dispatch company public nine months later and um, built that to a quarter of a billion, half a billion in value, left that, uh, I had a very bad accident, just about died, uh, broke my back in three places and um, hadn't had the chance to take kids so I took some time out and regrouped, and then moved to San Francisco, and started two new companies, Um, started one of the first profit nonprofits. got very involved in the Red Cross, and um, had two kids, so I did a portfolio approach next, and um, one of those company, and one of the things that I learned when I took my company public, which is another whole story, was that, you know, it's very lonely at the top, and at the time, I'd done everything sort of the woman's way, I really didn't have any, men tend to naturally build networks of support where women don't tend to build networks of support. So when I was the CEO of a high growth um, public company at that time, you know, I was in my mid thirties. I was the youngest CEO in the NASDAQ. I really didn't have the fabric of support around me. So when I started my next set of companies, you know, I'd met this this Texan guy and he'd said to me, when we got out of business school and I can't do a Texan accent, but he'd said to me, LJ, I'm building my own personal board of directors. Would you be on it? And I just thought, Oh, what a naff Texan thing to say in my full Kiwi judgment. But at the time when I, when I ended up being the CEO, I realized actually that I really needed that. So I decided that I was going to build my own personal board of directors for my next set of ventures. So, you know, I did the partner thing, then I did the public CEO thing, then I took a year off and sabbatical and reformed my life and rethought about how I wanted to live. and made a significant change in my way I related to life. Before that, I would thought that, you know, you had to work hard, be focused, sacrifice, make lots of money and then be happy. And then I realized that actually that was completely flawed. And that um, you never knew, you never know how long you've got. So actually you need to do everything that you want now. Cause you don't know if you've got a tomorrow and you've got to be happy now. And actually it's not about the money. So I, um, uh, there was a Buddhist saying, which basically said, you know, you take a glass that's full and you put an egg in it and the water overflows. But if you take an empty glass, put an egg in it, fill it with water, it doesn't. So I basically decided then that I would have my kids, that I would I needed to contribute to society, locally and globally, and that I'd start a raft of businesses, which is I did in the next ten years. That's the portfolio that I I developed, and in that I decided that I would never miss another family event, and that I would never cancel a meeting, with personal board of director support, no matter how much stress I was under. So um, one of my companies that um, I started uh, and it was called, I say so, and then became the concierge. We, re- we were one of the last companies to raise money before the bubble burst in 2001. And um, we ended up with uh, an underwater on our valuation. And we had a set of investors that we were the last company in their fund and they refused to take a down round. And so we got stuck, we needed more capital. We couldn't get it. so. Um, my yeah, they, were they were in a different okay.
2: space too, right? They were in a biotech space. And yeah.
1: You know. Well, it was all the things you learn about a VC firm. This was a set of entrepreneurs who were healthcare. This was their first fund. Um, all, And we were the only surviving company. Um, so they really didn't, they'd never done, um, this was their fund number one, and they'd never done tech before. Yeah. So um, all the lessons learned about where you don't take money from. And um, we decided that we were going to step down. We tried for three years to restructure the company um, and we couldn't. And so um, I had a a coffee scheduled with Mark Edwards had been an introduction for me. So I went off and had coffee with Mark and Mark's like, how's it going? And I said, well, do you really want to know? (laughs) Normally when you say, you know, how's it going? And um, he said, well, yes. And I said, well, actually, this is one of the worst days of my life. You know, I've got to walk away from my company and my commitments, but I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to say to the investors, we'll do an orderly transition. You can hire a management team, but we're out. And Mark's like, well, you know, I know this guy who I think could help you create a different reality. Would you be open to that? And I'm like, well, God, there's nothing to lose. You know, I've just... Called you know six years of my life into this thing, so we called Dan and he was in LA in his car and Dan's like, all right then if you what what why don't you cancel your board meeting, and I'll come and spend Friday with you, and we'll see what the possibilities are. So I'm like, all right, nothing to lose, so cancel the meeting and Dan comes into our offices and um, he gets me in a room by myself and he says, okay, LJ, tell me you know what would be just zero limitations, what would be the best possible outcome, write it on the whiteboard, zero limitations. So I did that. And then he went into the other room and he did it with my business partner separately. Came together, Ramesh and I were very aligned about what we wanted. And Dan said, well, what ha- what if um, if I told you that in three months you can have that outcome? And we're like, well, you know, this seems absolutely impossible. Uh, and that outcome was they'd put like $7 million in and write off the 7 million and give us some sort of note back and walk away from the company and give it back to us. Um, So we're like, well, what's, you know, we might as well take another three months at this after six years. Why not give this a crack? And so Dan um, coached me and literally, you know, we would have phone calls and Dan would be on the call listening and texting me, stop talking or Do this or say (laughs) this, and so we like get on the phone and we'd have these conversations and then debrief. And three months later, they wrote us a letter offering that to us,
2: Hmm.
1: and we accepted.
2: Yeah, a little above. we, I I thought it was like 13.5 million in debt.
1: Uh, it was, uh, I don't remember that it was seven million in equity, and I think they'd done it more, and yeah, something like that. Yeah, uh,
2: I'll never forget. There was a we were negotiating with them, and I asked Linda, you know, look you know, tell them we can get this money and get them set up. And then she said, okay, they need to talk to you because we had a little group that we're going to invest. And they said, okay, so how much are you going to put in? Because we had told Linda we'd do a million. And I told the guy, zero. <laughs> and Linda calls back going, what are you doing? I said, be calm, be calm. I didn't want to tell you this up front. You just be calm and tell them these guys are bumpkins. They don't know what they're doing. I might be able to get a million out of them. And, and she was like, you're crazy. I said, just, just do it. And we did it. And that really flipped the switch. And I had done some research on the guy that the guy who had, we were working with, which is a junior partner. And he really wanted to make a move. He wanted to make a splash. And, and so I at first had to like do the parade of horrible. So he was deflated. And then if he could come back and get a million out of us, he'd be a hero. And Linda was great. We but I, I, you know, I knew if I told her this, it would be a little harder. So I just kind of, so they call up. They said, well, she said you want to do a million. I saw oh, no, we can't do that. We don't have We're just a couple guys up here. We don't we don't have that kind of money. We had a million, two or three, I think, put together, but we didn't
1: tell them. That. And you know, we ultimately sold the company for 150 million in cash and they got a million dollars back, but uh, you know, they didn't want to work with us. Yeah. So we did a good deal, didn't we, Dan? Yes, we did. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. I, and so I learned a lot on that in terms of you know. I then did a lot of the uh, yeah, so a lot of lot about negotiation and taking things. Oh, we, did a,
2: we We restructured your team, and yeah. I remember we went from eighteen executives down to six, and you were so nervous to go. How could, and most of them were we? I just they were choosing out because they saw no possibility.
1: Yeah,
2: and I said, don't worry, man. The six we got are good, and we went from there and went up.
1: Yeah, well, it's so interesting, you know, because as you look at leadership, and um, I've had like seven people like Dan in my life. Have just changed my reality. and um and that's the great thing about um, you know one of the things I'm really trying to do now is to be that for other people, um, in terms of you know because if you look at what I've done, you know I've created about seven hundred and fifty million us in value. I've created about eight and a half thousand jobs, and um, I've done business in eighty seven countries and started multiple companies. And so um, this is all I've been doing since I was 16 years old is figuring out how to build and scale things contextually. And that's what I love doing. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's been an interesting, it's an interesting ride. There's so many different stories and I don't know if I'm talking too much, but the, yeah.
0: Not too much at all. You said something that I wanted to push in on that I thought was really interesting. You said, in this new phase of life or in one of, one of the phases of life. I think you named, I think you said you've had four, but one of them, you said you realize you need to do what you want now. And it's not about the money. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And I, and that's so, uh, that's like so nice to hear. It's like, Oh yes, that feels right. Just do what you want. But I can also hear so many founders and business owners, entrepreneurs and leaders who listen to this podcast going, okay. Yeah, that's great. Uh, but actually some work has to be done. and people are co- constantly needing me. and uh, they all need to support their families. I need to support my family. And And so I'm wondering how did you how does that philosophy go from something that feels nice to a life led that way while mm. growing and starting businesses?
1: It, it's interesting because you know, Uh, I'll give you a Dan answer, which is, you know, you have it as you want it. So it's interesting, and I'm still learning this, is I'm still able to... So I work incredibly hard, but incredibly focused. And I don't know, you're all men on the call, but as a woman, it's amazing because you earn so much money and you've got so much time, you know, so you're CEO of a public company. And then you have one kid and then you have another and then you have to get the entourage, the old peer, you know, you get the dog, the cat, you've got like 10 times as much financial responsibility and a quarter of much time, but you still produce the same results, right? So I I basically um, just made a decision that I was going to work, I was not going to work the weekends, I was going to spend time with my children, I was going to prioritize my family, but I still get stuffed up. So I'm just much more efficient. And I am, so for me... I am 100% committed to whatever I do. And so it comes down to, you know, like I got got locked out of uh, a stadium where I was supposed to be in the VIP thing without my tickets. I walked right through with no tickets. I am absolutely determined to do whatever I set. There is no such thing as no. So for me, I just basically I use... um, constraint modeling, I basically say, okay, so I've got to achieve this. And then I work backwards within the constraint that I said, what most entrepreneurs don't do is number one, they're not hundred percent committed. And number two, they, they basically say it's 24 seven and it's my health and it's my family. And I'm going to put everything at risk where, you know I had a pretty good crack at it. I just about killed myself. Um, And so I had to, you know, I was, you know, not far away, you know, I'm lucky to be alive. And realize that that's actually completely wrong that it's actually just a decision, so um I decide what I'm going to do and then I work backwards in terms of how I'm going to achieve it and my mindset is um, failure is not an option
2: So talk about what you're working back from now like what have you decided because you're in a new phase mm-hmm. and I'd love to hear because just it's always you always inspire me so much when you talk about. Because you, you think so big and you think so far out. So I'd love to hear what, what that is for you now.
1: Yeah, well, it's sort of evolving, um, you know, because I've uh, been in an intensely um, uh, family-oriented time, you know, with teenagers, which is a really tough time for them, which is another whole subject. But um, for me, um, uh, I've got a couple of different things that I'm working and evolving. And one of them is Uh, in this whole entrepreneur space where, um, you know, the concept of, you know, we started building a billion-dollar company like 30 years ago and now it's, you know, build a billion-dollar company. It's, you know, everyone's expecting you to do that. Unicorns, everything that I did 30 years ago has now got names, you know. We did Agile before there was Agile. We were doing a unicorn before, you know. uh, I'm always way before my time. But this whole ecosystem that's developed, uh, my mind is um, is set up for investors and not for the entrepreneur. So it, the the things that aren't talked about is ninety five percent of entrepreneurs fail, or when they get to an exit event, they do not get a significant amount of money out of it because the money all goes to investors. Because if you go and look at the advice that you get along the way, it's from bankers, it's from lawyers who um, see the investors as the ones they're getting the money stream from, not the entrepreneurs. And then now there's all this, all these um, incubators, et cetera, that are either run by people who have never started a company or by people who are investing. So the interests aren't aligned. And so um, I've started this, what I would consider a movement that's level up for founders. That's about building a founder community to educate founders about the context of what's happening to them. Because a lot of founders go in and they're so excited to get into this incubator or get this investment. And, you know, before they know it, they're four or five years in and they're like me. They were like me at Le Concierge when I met Dan. I had so little equity that I was basically slave labor for what I was doing. And you see now the, you know, like, the stress that I had when I had a public company at 35 without the support, I see it now in these kids that are 24, 25, 26, and it's hell, and they don't have that infrastructure and support to support them. So my sort of give back thing is how do I build a world where entrepreneurs are supporting entrepreneurs with aligned interest to enable them to um, get more from what they're doing, to get further to not have to fail so much to succeed, but to um, get more in terms of a financial outcome for the effort that they put in and not have to sacrifice this, their family life and other things to the same extent.
2: Yeah. and you, a couple of things. I mean, you not only have the knowledge, I mean, you, there's a couple of things that sets you apart in my experience of the many entrepreneurs I've worked with. One is you're not afraid of the discipline you are, when I asked you to do the homework for that meeting, I said to Eileen, if she doesn't do the homework, I can't help her. And I came in, I was astounded at the level of detail and understanding that you had of your business. And, you know, in every which direction, I mean, you, you the the balance sheet, the prop. And you had, you just handle cash, you know what you're doing and you knew, you knew your business model, which was a pretty complex business model. It took me a while to get my head wrapped around it. But the other thing is you're, your courage your willingness to have the go in and have the conversation with the most difficult situation or people and work collaborate collaborate to find whatever possibility and if it's not there to drop it um, that takes courage and i think a lot of entrepreneurs or a lot of founders are unwilling to lose so they can't win and mm-hmm. and you're willing in the kind of the the spirit of card playing, you got to be the one who's willing to lose it all is the most dangerous one at the table. Mm. And I've seen you do that. I've seen you and win, win that way. I've seen you lose that way and come back and learn. And what you learn from that is much greater for the next time. And it's it's impressive, that kind of character. And That's where I think a lot of entrepreneurs, they can get all the info. They can learn, but if they are not willing to put themselves at stake like that, then it's not going to have the kind of punch their intention isn't going to have the kind of spirit that yours does. Because even if your intentions, even if your plans are shot, have holes in them, your intention fills it. I've watched it.
1: Mm. I, you know, and my husband had always had the backup plan that we were always prepared to lose everything. And we would go and buy a combi van and drive around Europe and we'd probably have just as much fun. So and, and it's really hard because, you know, you walk away from being a partner in a big firm. It's a seven-figure income to do the entrepreneurial thing and one day you're worth a squillion and the next day you're worth nothing, you know, and that happens on a daily basis and the challenge to your mental health in doing that. So anyway, so that's one thing that I want to do. I want to lean into that space also um, typically, and I'll do this experiment with you guys. It's like, if I ask you to name one successful woman entrepreneur, who's not in media or fashion, how many can you name? I could name a few. Mm-hmm. How many yeah. can you name? Know? Just one, two, three. One, two. Yeah, well, you've been working with them, so you know. Yeah, I've about with a the lot of women. So it's yeah, not fair. Exactly, so you don't, you don't count, Dan. Nine hundred, virtually everyone you ask, male and woman, can't even name one at the tip of their tongue.
2: Adrian can too, and so can, We've been working with a lot of women, yeah. but but,
1: yeah,
2: but so, you're right. You're right. That's that's very true. And. Um,
1: so, so to me, um, and one of the reasons why is, so anyway, so I feel that it's really important for me as a successful woman that's yeah. worked in boys' jobs, to become really vocal and active, which I've never done before, um, and to create a platform for other women to step up and other diverse founders, because diverse founders get one point six percent of the funding, you know, and I've raised more than three hundred million US. In funding, So I really care about that. I really care about being a leader there. The other thing that I've been working on, um, I've always been a glass ceiling breaker, you know, one of the first woman partners, uh, the second woman ever to list on the NASDAQ Stock Exchange. Um, is um, So what I've been doing in part-time is get, getting into governance. And um, I'm now starting to chair boards and um, shift the dial in the boardroom. And that has been another whole adventure. Uh, so, um, and to my mind, you know, I'm always that torch carrier for the next generation and creating the, the track for that. Um, and interestingly enough, I've been doing a bit of speaking on this. And, um, uh, you know, I, I went onto boards and was just uh, quite, uh, it was just not a pleasant experience. I'm like, why on earth am I doing this? And then I had the opportunity, you know, like I was on one board and between board meetings, the chair changed. But I go onto this board call and um, and there's a different chair. And I'm like, well, what's happened? And they're like, oh, did we forget to talk to you about it? And I'm like, yeah. And um, they're like, oh, there was a, you know, there was a whole regulatory thing and the chair had to step down. I'm like, well, normally you would talk to all of the directors. And then I was 10 times more qualified than the chair that they selected. But then I realized that I'd done the classic sort of woman thing where I hadn't put my hand up and said, I wanted to be chair. I just assumed that because I was so qualified that I'd be invited. So I called all of my boards up and said, do you see me as a potential chair candidate? And um, the ones that said, yes, I said, great. Cause I'm putting my hand up. The ones that I said, no, I said, well, I'll be transitioning off. And I'm now chair of half the boards that I'm on. And, um, as chair, then I have the ability to build a diverse, forward-looking, growth-oriented, um, ethically aligned board, which I have really enjoyed. And interestingly enough, um, you know, so I'm really a, a challenging and inviting women to take that role. And so, um, I'm um, so I'm on a quest to, to chair some big companies in the U.S.
2: Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was thinking you. Just look at our podcast series. We've got more women on it than men. <laughs> you know, it's
1: pretty interesting. Yeah, so there we go. Yeah, so that are a the couple of things that I'm working on. and then maybe something else. I don't know. I'm just in an exploring phase of taking opportunities and and because I find it quite terrifying to come out and to talk about what I've done, you know. Uh, so, yeah, so I'm just experimenting with that. So, I just did V1 of my new website, which, um, and I've just, uh, yeah, so, and I'm now got a, a, a mentoring about 50 entrepreneurs who want to build billion dollar businesses and, they, you know, building all of the content and strategies around that.
0: Um, What's so terrifying I- about sharing your story? I'm so curious uh,
1: because in most of my life, um, you know, I'm five foot two. I used to have bright red hair. I lost it. I became a blonde after I had that car accident. Um, and I had freckles. and, um, I was always underestimated. Right. So, um, if I told people what I was going to do, uh, it, you know, in New Zealand, there's this thing called tall poppy. Yeah. So, um, uh, so I, my strategy in my whole career was to look what was going on and figure out how I was going to win. And then I'd win before anyone noticed. Because <laughs> then they wouldn't um, try to uh, sabotage me.
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: And um, so now where I've got more of a profile, having to deal, you know, so it's sort of like if I put my – it's like you – Telling me I have to put all my cards on the table and show people what I'm doing is terrifying because I'm used to having my cards close to my chest. Mm. So it's actually a fundamentally different way of being for me um, than what I'm used to because there's never been any advantage to me showing my cards. The reason why I've done things like, you know, list a company with the biggest roll-up, raised all that money is because I went and watched how people raise money. And then I replicated that protest process contextually to make that happen and um, utilize people in a different way. Well, that would sound, if I talked about that process, that would sound incredibly manipulative. But the only reason why I could come across, uh, um, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, get across the unconscious bias was to do it that way because if I put all my cards on the table, I wouldn't have been able to raise the money. I wouldn't have made partner. I wouldn't have been able to do the things that I've done. So it's exactly the opposite of what I've ever done before. So it makes me incredibly uncomfortable.
2: <laughs>
3: well, it sounds like it sounds like a calling worth this. Is it? Are you in the fourth or fifth life? Are we-
1: well, there was the farm, there was Wellington, there was the IPO, there was the portfolio, there was the teenagers yeah. on the board. Uh, so I'm actually six. in my sixth life. You're in
3: sixth, that's six. great, yep. we're well, great. <laughs> the book, back, the book. Back, back to the beginning we go. I mean, I, I, <laughs> you know, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, I, my experience is, you know, venture generates vitality. And at your level of expertise, which is by the way, awesome, so great to hear more, so many more details of your story. You're legendary in our world, just because Dan tells a lot of these stories. I'm glad you're doing some fact, fact checking here um, with
0: the stories we've heard
2: for so
3: long.
0: <laughs> um, the, uh, I think it was up to like 58 million or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> my point is like, is uh, anyway, it's,
3: uh, it's, it's, it's great to hear about your willingness to take on something new for the sake of others in this new way. You know, it's like, I I keep hearing, you know, the idea of like choosing yourself, um, that you, that you took a stand early for yourself and that meant standing for your family and it meant standing for all these other things and that you weren't going to be another statistic of burnout and you weren't going to be the martyr instead you know, heroes make choices. Martyrs make sacrifices. Mm-hmm. Maybe. I don't know. I just made that up, but it's like you related to it. Like, Oh, this is what is up for me. And success is going to come out of this natural constraint instead of here. I am to die. I hope it works. Yeah. Well, I
1: just about died. So I was just about successful at that and realized that was a, not a winning strategy, but yeah, you're, yeah, you're absolutely right.
3: Well, it's, it's, it takes so much. I mean, that word courage Dan used with you. It's like, it takes so much to do that. Uh, I, my guess is, you know, is that as you go show your cards, which ha, you know, which wasn't your strategy before that as you're out there showing cards and helping other people show their own cards, at least to you in that mentoring relationship, yeah, you know, there's going to be so much joy. I mean, it seems like vulnerable now, but vulnerability that's worth it is so meaningful.
1: It's just so interesting, though, because um, you know, and uh, you know, meeting Dan and I can remember when we first did some of the workshops and where you know this whole concept of as you have it as you want it and having to look at yourself. It is such a confronting process that what I yep. find is um, many entrepreneurs say they want something, but they're not prepared to do that work of confrontation because. You only build something to the level that you're prepared to evolve. And so I'm not as good at Dan is putting that mirror in front of people. And it's actually quite painful to watch them because you see them stuck in their racket of what's limiting them. And the question that I ask myself is, well, so I had this, I've had this very intense life. You know, it started off with my family. My family was a very intense family. My father, you know, he, um, it's like, you can't sort of understand the remoteness of where I come from. The fact that he was a multimillionaire by the time he was 30 in Palmerston, North New Zealand in the seventies. It's like, you know, it's like when I went to Africa and worked with the woman in Senegal and they've built a business out of the deserts. So, you know, we think we're entrepreneurs, we're not entrepreneurs. You know, what they did with no support and nothing. You know, it's like, um, uh, I got, I got brought up in that intense environment. Therefore, I learned not to be fearful. But the challenge is you've got so many people in, and entrepreneurialism is sexy now, but they get to this level and they can't go to the next one. So I, I did do a lot of one-on-one coaching and I found it so frustrating because I could see how they could be 10x growing, but they couldn't. And I could see that it maybe they maybe they never could figure out how to do that. So... You know, I certainly haven't got this supporting people down because of that. It's like I am so willing to uh, lose everything to become something new. But it's like I'm in that state right now. I feel incredibly um, vulnerable. I feel like I'm completely failing at it because it's something that I really don't know how to do. I feel really uncomfortable with it. But I do know that if I stick with that process, I'll get to the other side. And that is... To me, the biggest limiter for entrepreneurs in terms of how do you go through that process, you know, it's like forging your character. You know, I don't know. Yeah, that's exactly.
3: Well, you you do know, you know, at least that's you've lived it. Is my is my. I do live it. Yeah. You do. I mean, you know, you've you've doubled down on the who, and if at least that's how I'd say, like you kept you keep showing up in a particular way, and this that, and you you say you keep using the word like make like but like generating the context, right? And you relate yeah, the contextual plan. And you relate to your environment distinctly, but that comes out of the person you've committed to being. Mm. Yeah. And like other other people don't are waiting for the right strategy. Instead of becoming the right type of person, that the strategy appears. And you consistently do that. At least that's what I hear in like the theme in your story.
1: That's exactly what I do like and you know I've took the role of chair of UNICEF New Zealand and have transformed that and the first stage of any transformation is changing the context and the conversation yeah. and then everything comes out of that and it's sort of similar to business like I don't see business as an event I don't see it as a strategy I see it as a set of practices uh-huh. and so if you give me a business I can tell you I will make it wildly successful now, that sounds really arrogant, but the word I used is it. Actually, I will take it and I will evolve it until it's successful. Most people are so um, set in their mind about what it is, they're not going to evolve it to get it to be yeah. successful. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So we would call a that whole
1: we, context. We
2: would say that's humble because to own your gift is humble. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and it isn't that you won't fail. It's that your failures will contribute to the success.
1: Mm-hmm. That's right. And I'm prepared to fail over and over again yeah. on a daily basis. Until I do, I'm determined that I will keep failing. until I've I seen do it.
2: You. I've been there with you through five Maybe. years.
1: Oh, God. Like, yeah, I've got way too much character, guys. Way too much character. I remember I had to go to her house one day. I was throwing
2: rocks at her window. You have to come out. <laughs> okay we lost the account we can recover <laughs> i did not telephone, telephone could down. Uh, <laughs> that's
0: so good mm. yeah. this is this conversation has been so rich for me so yeah. thank you linda for showing up and and being willing to share show your cards this time yes and uh it's so beautiful i can't wait to see what giant things come out of this um, and I'm so grateful for the connection. I have so I don't want it to end. I have like uh, like five more points that on um, things that you talked about that I wanted to let's push have into. Back let's yeah, have let's back have here. you back.
1: Yeah, great. We're well, um, lovely to meet you guys. Um, like I say, I love Dan and I've loved all the work we've done together, so I'm sure you're enjoying working with him. He's never boring either. are you, Dan Takini?
0: Mm-hmm. Never boring. Never boring.
1: Yeah, and yeah, I love the way he could just look inside you and just call you out. It was like, oh shit! I thought I was going to get away with that
2: <laughs> no, That's Adrian. Uh-huh. We do it with each other. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Linda, thank you for taking this time. Yeah. You
1: thank really you. Love you.
3: Okay. okay. Bye, All guys. Right. Bye, everybody. So- Bye, then.
0: Well, my friends, thank you so much for listening to yet another conversation on the Naked Leadership Podcast. Your listenership and commitment to the podcast means the world to us. If this podcast or these conversations has helped or inspired you in any way, would you mind going to Apple Podcasts and leaving a five-star rating and a glowing review? This helps us grow the movement and reach more leaders and teams. Finally, the greatest compliment that you can give us is sharing the podcast with your teams and the other leaders in your life. Until next week, bye-bye, everybody.